Welcome to Cyber Vision and today's episode, Standard Essential Patterns. I'm Nigel Schweitzer and joined by co-host Francesca Lavoie. Do you like that Francesca today rather than Frankie? Yeah, I'll be Francesca today. I feel like we're talking about SEPs or Standard Essential Patterns. I can be a bit formal as Francesca. And to add to the formality, today's guest is Lou Zaretsky, who's the founder of Hamilton IPV, and we'll hear more about that journey and the role of Hamilton IPV as we go along. A pleasure to have you with us, Lou. Great to be here, and I'm glad to bring formality wherever I go. Fantastic. Thanks, Lou. Great to have you on Cypher Vision. I'd like to kick off with hearing a little bit about your background and your career to date for our listeners. What's your career been like and how did you end up in IP? Well, I'm a strategy consultant and that's what I've always been doing throughout my career. So I started out doing marketing strategy for tech companies. And around the time of the dot-com bubble burst, I happened to meet Marshall Phelps and Dan McCurdy. And they were starting some new ventures at the time, namely intellectual ventures and Thinkfire. And so it seemed like a good time to make a jump and do something different. And that's what I wound up doing. And so that got you into the world of IP and the world of patents. What do you find interesting about patents? Well, I guess I would say that some days nothing, but other times it's an enormously complicated field and there's always more to learn and try to figure out and understand. Sometimes you think you can make things simple, but there's a lot of lurking complexity all the time as well that gives you something to wrestle with and and think about. Because the world that you work in isn't just any old patent world, but it is the standard essential patent world, which to your point is, is much more complicated. So how did you get into SEPs? Early on, once I had joined the field, I started running into this and I thought Qualcomm was quite an inspiration. They had built this colossal licensing business that stood apart from any other that I could find at that time, and and it still does. And so you sort of wonder, what are these people doing that is so incredible and that sets them apart from anybody else so dramatically? As I learned more and more about it, you know, you could see what some of the merits were and why so many people were interested and had problems or questions or places where I could assist. And so taking a little bit of a step back, for our listeners who aren't complete patent experts, could you explain what a standard essential patent is and where someone might find that in the universe today? Sure. Well, in general, one aspect of a patent that can serve as a merit for that patent is a mapping of the claim to some kind of useful product or service. And in general, that's done mechanically to a physical product or or some kind of existing service. But in the case of a standard essential patent, it's done to a technical specification that's shared in industry. And there are a huge number of these that exist, most famously in wireless communications with standards like 5G or Wi-Fi. So it sounds like standard essential patents are definitely something that's pretty important to the tech industry. Can you give us a scale around that? Yeah, with some co-authors and friends, I've been working on a series of research at Hoover Institution and Stanford and for you know at least six years, and we quantify this in the mobile space. And what we tend to find is that 
there is something like 10 or $11 billion a year produced in cash flowing from licensees to licensors in this space. And that's just to the leading players like a Qualcomm, Nokia, Ericsson, Interdigital, people like that. That does sound like a huge sum of money. Has that always been the case? If you go back and look at the time series, it's pretty steady. The faces change. So at one point, well, some of these companies weren't always focused on patent licensing, but entered and grew big businesses, most recently Huawei, for example. And perhaps there might have been some other people that declined or exited. But in the end, the total doesn't change very much. It's still a lot of money when you think about it. That's the revenue that you're getting from licenses. And my understanding around how this whole process should work is that it should be done on a fair and reasonable and non-discriminatory basis. That seems to me that we need behavior that's economically rational. Does that actually happen? One of the products of our studies is that we think it does happen, and it happens from the ground up. So all parties are acting individually, pursuing their own goals, and adversarial to each other very often. But when you put it all together, it winds up at this sort of equilibrium that I described. And so you could say that when these people all get together and fight a lot, they produce this result, which is fairly stable. So fighting a lot produces a a stable result that's hopefully rational. You could think of it almost like antagonistic muscle groups. If you wanted to have a really strong biceps, you probably would have to also train the triceps. They're related. And, And so here, if you had exceptionally strong licensors and indifferent licensees, you wouldn't get to the same equilibrium and the same if the opposite were true. But if everybody pursues their interests, whatever those are, to the best of their ability, and that's all combined together in the market, we get this equilibrium that we do have. Nigel, we often talk about making rational decisions, and then we we discuss using data to do that. This seems like a, a very big area to be making rational decisions around and lots of players in it. Yeah, I think we work on the basis The data is fact, or at least what you're trying to do is to get data as close to fact as you can. And the more facts are available to both parties, the closer those parties can get to each other in order to go and make those decisions that Lou was talking about. And so transparency is a huge part of that. The more opaque you make the data, the more there is to argue about and the longer the fights go on. But if you can bring more accuracy to the data, in this case, if you can understand what a standard essential patent is and who owns it, then there's a hope that you reach better decisions more quickly. And surely, Lou, the outcome should be we we reach those decisions quicker. We don't need to go down a litigation route. Is that your experience? There's a great Nobel-winning economist named Ronald Coase, and one of his results that's very interesting, he said something to the effect that to increase social welfare, reduce transaction costs. And this is kind of what Nigel's getting at. You know, if you could give everybody the tools to do their job better, you know, facts, for example, so that they could make fact-based decisions, then those transaction costs go down and they pursue their aims more effectively and efficiently, whatever those aims would be, even if those aims are at cross purposes with other people in the market. 
Nigel mentioned transparency. Could you maybe talk us through the initiative that you're working on around 5G transparency? Yeah, sure. The goal is to provide IP executive decision makers with the best facts, you know, the best data set about the 5G SAP landscape. And to do that by compensating for the incentives and disincentives on the standard side to produce the right decision set and a data set for these decision makers. And to do it collaboratively by getting companies together to share the costs and the effort and the results. And we hope that this shared perspective will enable people to do what what you all had talked about before, which is reduce transaction costs and get to their conclusions more quickly. And has this initiative just started? What's your next steps on it? We've been working on this for quite some time. A lot of research to figure out what to do, how to do it, get people involved. And so we've now, with Cypher's help, Cypher's created for us our first release of our machine learning classifier that forecasts the landscape. And behind that, we have our first release of statistical results that show our statistical analysis of the landscape. And that brings me on to talk a little bit about the relationship that we've got with you, Lou, at Cypher. Nigel, we've been working with Lou for a good chunk of time now bringing transparency around certain areas of standard essential patents? Well, I'll certainly start it off, and it's been great to work with Lou. The practical experience combined with the the data science and the passion to bring greater transparency is what's required. It's not like machine learning is smart. Cypher is inherently very dumb. It knows nothing until it's trained. But we started our work with Lou in the area of HEDC, video coding. I don't know whether you're happy to share how using the training data that was available, why or how that made a difference? In these SAP areas where licensing is most prolific, firstly in cellular and secondly in audio and video codecs, there's always this desire to figure out insights about the landscape because that's important in thinking about who the licensors might be and who the licensees may need to get licenses from. And that goes into any kind of economic calculations about the amounts and how they might be divided up. And so HEBC was an area that we thought could use some help. And we had clients who needed that help and wanted it. And when I met Steve through you, we discovered together that there might be a way to do this using machine learning, which I was not aware of at the time. And so that was the inspiration. You solve practical problems for clients using new tools that have not been used in this way before. Great. And and I guess we've been working with you for a number of years on the HEVC report. We're now contributing to the 5G transparency project as well. So Lou, just taking a, a step back, what is your experience of the current trends in the IP landscape at the moment? So since I joined the industry, I think we sort of entered into what I call an age of alliances. And we've seen much more interest and activity around companies collaborating to build and share new capabilities of different sorts. And in general, these capabilities are probably not strategic or differentiating, but they're useful. And if we go back to the earliest juncture when I was in the industry, we were seeing the development of intellectual ventures, which would provide a capability to sweep up huge numbers of patents and provide license to them for their early members. 
And then following that, we saw the, the AST, the OIN, Lot Network, RPX, Unified Patents, various other structures created over time, but all of them having this common theme that companies could work together, share the costs, share the capabilities, and do a better job. So that theme of collaboration seems to sit slightly awkwardly with some of the terms that we were talking about before in terms of the fighting or, or the litigation. Nigel, how do we marry the two? I think fighting is only really a means to get to collaboration. I know that sounds like an odd thing in the political era we live in at the moment. But I think, Lou, you were saying at the beginning that all of this confusion, all this complexity reaches a relatively acceptable economic outcome. I didn't find it hard to buy a connected device, a mobile device, a tablet. So maybe it just works. So what we're looking for is, I think I'm making the same point as the one I made before, is to reduce the the cost to take grit out of the wheels, to remove friction. I'm not sure you think, do you, Lou, that 5GTP will come up with some ground truth for all purposes, but what, a reduction of friction? Exactly, reduction of friction. Just uh, be pragmatic, reduce friction as much as possible, and let the market work. And as you said, you know, all the fighting does result in what you could call collaboration in the form of transactions. And those transactions, when you combine them, they are this equilibrium we talked about. And that equilibrium is pretty productive, as you said. You can buy devices at affordable prices and and they work well and so forth. And so from a policy standpoint, we sort of advocate that this is a productive equilibrium and it should be protected. We were talking earlier, Frankie, about deals and negotiation. I spent, as you know, 25 years of my life doing more licenses than I did litigation. And you said, how did you bring that about? To which my response was, we stopped when both parties thought that they had a bad deal. There's always, even in negotiation, a tension. Now, when tension gets too high, then the negotiation breaks and you end up with litigation. But what you're trying to do is to keep people in the room and find that sort of, as the old-fashioned term, that pathway to yes. And no one ever accepts your first offer because you've always got to have that negotiation because no one likes walking away thinking they left money on the table. So if licensing is collaboration, then litigation could probably be described as a pathway to licensing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all that. One of the things that might make it easier as well is some aspect of the transparency. In other words, setting the right expectations. So if you came into the space thinking paying any royalties is an affront and you should never have to do it, well, then you'll be set up for a lot of tension and disagreements and litigation, and and it's unnecessary. If you came in, on the other hand, thinking that there is this certain equilibrium, and that whatever your outcome is, it might resemble that, well, then you might have much less tension and come out to the outcome that you're more or less expecting. That's a really good point. We've discussed what the current environment looks like and how we're maybe moving towards less friction and more productive efficiency. What do you think the future holds if you were to look forward? Well, I think we could say that all of these groups we talked about have done a great job of building these new shared capabilities, but they're probably not done. There are probably lots of other ones to build. 
And so I think the industry could look forward to finding these additional ways to collaborate and gaining improvements that way. And building out more data sets and better facts or transparency, as we were saying, is another hope because that might help people improve their expectations, improve their perceptions of what is going to happen, how to forecast their business and so forth. So I think if we could keep working on these trajectories on the sort of data and tools and on the shared capabilities, the industry could look forward to further improvements in efficiency. If we think about the IP professional today and and IP teams, do they need to make any changes? What do they need to do differently to be fit for, for this future that's coming? Well, separate from working on these trajectories, I think they could probably take some inspiration from other functions like finance and marketing. And I think we should all look at how those fields move ahead through innovation, research, academic or practical, and evolve their practices. And you think about strategic frameworks that show up in places like the Harvard Business Review, new tools and data sets, new ways of training, all of these things. My sense is that other fields like marketing and finance have done this much more effectively than the IP space has done it. So maybe we could do a lot better. Well, I can speak from the marketing space. We definitely, we use a lot more data to make decisions than we did in the past. And maybe that's getting close to what we always ask our guest, Cypher Vision, the key takeaway. How would you capture that from this conversation? Well, I guess I'd hope we could all be inspired to imitate the productive behaviors we see in places like finance and marketing and move our field ahead quickly to a better place where we make better decisions more quickly and more confidently and improve our accuracy and productivity. To get a sense of scale, a recent IHS report estimated that over 13 trillion of revenue from 5G will be generated by 2025 and over 250 billion of investment in 5G CapEx and R&D every year. So it's not surprising that those who invest in developing the standards want to receive a fair reward for that investment. But the scale also goes some way to explain why perceptions of what is fair differ considerably from the perspective of the payer and the receiver. But here's where the likes of Lou comes in. It's okay to have disagreements of opinion, but less helpful to have disagreements on the facts if there is objective evidence in areas where such as which patents are actually essential to the implementation of a standard. Lou is to be commended for his rationality, something that Lou probably doesn't hear very often, his passion for the right answer and not some reflex to opine on what serves the best interest of his client. We love our collaborations around HEVC, video standards and 5G, and more recently the 5G TP project specifically. Success should never be defined by reference to a silver bullet, and I totally buy into Lou's idea of chipping away at everything that is not true so that there is less to disagree about and easier to find the compromise that's always there within. Thank you, Lou, for the conversation. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for tuning into the Cypher Vision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag CypherVision and share your thoughts about today's episodes on Standard Essential Patents. <laughs>